Hey, we're really glad you're here today. If you're brand new, my name's Christian. I'm one of our pastors. Um, I wanna let you know next weekend, church is gonna look a little different. Just a reminder, we're gonna have a Saturday night service in addition to our Sunday morning services. The Chiefs play at 8.30 a.m. in uh, in Germany against the Dolphins. And a lot of you are gonna wanna watch that game and that's gonna wipe out all three Sunday morning hours. So we're gonna have a service at 5 p.m., full-blown service. It'll be just like Sunday morning. We will also have our 8, 9.30, and 11. So those of you who love Jesus more than Patrick, um, or Jesus more than Travis and Taylor. Like those of you who are going to come to church, we'll be here on Sunday, but a lot of us will be here on Saturday night too. So 5 p.m. Uh, it's also time change weekend next weekend, remember? So might be a good time to come to church on Saturday. Don't even worry about time change on Sunday. Enjoy the uh, football game as the Chiefs beat the Broncos, Lord willing. If you have your Bible, uh, Broncos today, Dolphins next week. Um, if you have your Bible, we're in Philippians chapter three today. Um, we announced a few weeks ago that our initiative in 2024 as a church was we were gonna try as a congregation to surrender 1% more of our time for kingdom living for the purpose of kingdom impact. Um, It doesn't sound like a lot, but when you break 1% down into minutes, um, in hours, in days, and weeks, there's a lot of spiritual impact that can happen with 1% of faithfulness in some key areas. That 18-month initiative begins in January, but we thought we would take the fall to just get into the mindset of what a surrendered life might look like. What is a heart of surrender? What is a head of surrender? What do hands of surrender look like? So we've been studying the book of Philippians, learning what it looks like to leverage your entire life and everything in your life for Jesus and his kingdom. Up to this point, we've learned that if we will surrender situations um, to God, if we will surrender our perspective to know that God is working in those situations, there will be people who stand out spiritually. People will be able to see Jesus in us if we surrender our situations and our perspective to Jesus. We've learned that if we'll surrender not just to live for ourselves, but to live for others, that spiritual community will become our spiritual legacy. They will be what we leave behind spiritually, and they will become our spiritual ministry when we need it the most. Last week, Pastor Mike taught us what it looked like to surrender our righteousness so that we could instead take Jesus' righteousness, which is perfect. And today, I'm gonna ask you to... to Think about with me, contemplate what it might look like to surrender your attitude, but I don't know that that's the best word. That's the title of our Bible study today, surrender my attitude, but maybe approach is a better word, surrender my approach. Here's here's what I'm trying to communicate to you. I'm asking you to surrender the way you think about what happens to you in life. I'm asking you to surrender um, how you process what you go through and what it can mean for you spiritually. As we get into the text today, that's what the Apostle Paul is going to say. After three chapters in Philippians, he's going to say, if you'll just learn to think differently, if you'll learn to process differently, if you'll have a different attitude than normal people, you'll really be able to mature spiritually. So he's going to begin with what I would call like three contrasts of thinking, like three ways that we can think, three contrasts of spiritual surrender. Um, He's either going to say, as you go through life, you're going to react this way or that way, either or. Somebody say this or that. Paul is going to say, as as life happens to you, you're either going to take this approach or that approach. I am asking you to take an approach that will help you become spiritually mature. As things happen to you, you are either going to do this or that. I'm asking you to do what will work for your spiritual maturity. Um, I chose the word attitude because of a quote that's lingered in my head for decades now. One of Charles Swindoll's most famous books is a book on attitude. I love this quote of his. He says, the longer I live, 
the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. Attitude to me is more important than facts. It's more important than the past, than education, than money, than circumstances, than failures, than successes, than what other people think or say or even do. It is more important than appearance, giftedness, or skill. It will make or break a company, a church, a home, a team. The remarkable thing is we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we will embrace for that day. We cannot change our past. We cannot change the fact that people will act in a certain way. We cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play the one string we have, and that is our attitude. I'm convinced, here's this famous quote, that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I react to it. And so it is with you. We are in charge of our attitudes. Leave that last screen up for just a minute. Some of you want to grab a picture of that on your phone. I am convinced that discipleship and spiritual maturity is 90% how you react to and process life and only 10% of what like is really happening in your life. That's what Paul's trying to say to us today. If you will surrender your approach to life, your life is not out of control, but it is out of your control in most areas. If you will surrender your approach and your attitude and how you process things, Paul will say you can become spiritually mature. But there's a contrast in attitudes. It's going to be this or that all the time. The first thing he's going to ask us to consider surrendering to, he says, no matter what happens in life, you are either, as life happens to you, you are always either choosing spiritual maturity or spiritual maturity. Life is, as life happens to you, a lot of times you are a passive bystander and your attitude, your approach, your process is either going to make you more spiritually mature or more spiritually immature. Look at what he says in Philippians 3, 15 through 16. We'll walk through Philippians 4, 3 today, but a couple verses at a time. Paul says, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you, verse 16, only let us live up to what we have already attained. You might underline verse 16. We're going to come back to it at the very, very end. It is like the one abiding direction in today's message. Only let us live up to what we've already attained. So the apostle Paul says, as you process what is happening in your life, there is a way to do it that will help you become mature. You say, what is that? He says in verse 15, just take such a view. Like, <laughs> what is such a view? He gave it to us above in verses 10 and 11. Paul said, regardless of what happens to me in life, here's what I strive for, here is my spiritual view. I want to know Christ. I want to be like Christ. One day I want to be with Christ. This is the view of mature followers of Jesus. My approach to life is not to control what happens to me, but to respond what happens to me with a desire to know Christ, to be like Christ, to one day be with Christ. Paul says this is what spiritual maturity looks like. This is the approach that spiritually mature people have. And Paul says everything that you go through in life, you will either look at it and say, can this help me know Christ, be more like Christ, get me closer to being with Christ, make me spiritually mature, or is this going to cause me to kind of run away from God? 
He'll say the same thing in Philippians 4 again. I know what it is to live with plenty. I know what it is to be content. Like, I just, I can do everything as long as I'm looking at knowing Christ, being like Christ, one day being with Christ. In verse 16, he says, you might not have matured to this point yet in your life. But if you will stay on the course you've started on, you'll get there. That's what verse 16 means. When he says, only live up to what you've already like started, Paul literally is saying, here's the one thing I want you to do. You've already started a race to know Christ, be like Christ, and be with Christ. Just process everything in life through that filter. Keep running that race. Know Christ, be like Christ, one day be with Christ. Even if you aren't mature yet, no matter what you go through, you'll get there. If that is the lens of life you're looking for, you have to surrender to spiritual maturity or spiritual immaturity. He also says as life happens, you are either going to surrender to models of faithfulness or unspiritual models of foolishness. You'll do this or that. You'll do either or. You'll, you'll have something happen in your life this week, and you will surrender to one of two attitudes, one of two approaches, one of two perspectives. You'll look to someone ahead of you spiritually and figure out how they would process something or you'll look to someone who doesn't have a spiritual mindset and you'll react the way they're reacting. You will this week surrender either to uh, spiritual models of faithfulness or spiritual models of foolishness. It's one of the reasons it's so important to have spiritual models of faithfulness. Not just in your life and in your friendships, but like in, in your mind's eye to be able to see them. Uh, one of the goals for next year of asking people to, to give 1% more of their time to kingdom living is that you would give 1% more of your time next year, every day, that's almost 15 minutes a day, to allowing yourself to experience kingdom living 15 more minutes a day next year than you did this year. Why is that the number? Well, one, because it's 1%, 14.4 uh, minutes a day. Um, we know that if you read your Bible 12 to 15 minutes a day, you'll read through your entire Bible in a year if you'll read it 1% of every day. You say, well, I, I'm already doing that. So we're going to ask some people then to maybe add a devotional to that. Uh, we're giving people a memory pack, 52 memory verses about some key things so that you can memorize a verse a week. Maybe that's the 1% more. One of the things we're doing is we've got 10 Christian biographies that we'll have out at our resource area in December. Um, great Christian heroes of the past from different generations of church history that you can read their story and be motivated. Why? Because Paul says it's important as you go through things in life, you are either going to look at people who've been faithful or you're going to look at people who've become foolish and you're going to surrender to one of those two types of people. So it's important to have models of faithfulness. Look at what Paul says in verse 17 and 18. He says, I want you to join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes. Somebody say, keep your eyes on. You have to be able to see people who've been spiritually faithful. Keep your eyes on people who live as we do. For as I've told you oft, as I've told you before, and now I'll tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. So you're going to experience something this week that can either make you more spiritually mature or more spiritually immature. And probably the decision you make will be who you engage in that process with you or who you look to in that process. It's interesting, um, several years ago, a, a businessman named Jim Rohn began to write books and give business lectures. Um, he, he had the Dave Ramsey story, but a generation before Dave Ramsey, um, except he, he wasn't a finance uh, guru, became a millionaire by the age of 30, was broke by the age of 33, and then kind of rebuilt his career and began to write books on leadership, um, began to write books on organizational leadership, 
wrote 17 books. He, he spoke seminars for more than 40 years. But really his life's work, he died in 2009, but he's remembered globally in the leadership world for one quote. And that one quote is this. He said, for 40 years, you were the average of the five people you spend the most time with. All his studies, all his years, all his meeting with organizational leaders from all types of business, he said it ultimately boils down to you are the average of the five people that you spend the most time with. Most recently, some leadership experts have begun to kind of unpack this quote, and sociologists have said that's actually not true. While they have lots of, while the five people you spend the most time with have lots of influence on you, you are actually far more influenced by the five people they spend the most time with than you think. Which means this, let's pause for a minute. Think about the five people this week you will spend the most time with. And let's ask a couple questions about this scenario. Think about the five people you'll spend the most time with this week who will also spend time with you. Do you raise or lower their spiritual temperature because you're in their circle? That's one good question to ask. If people spend time with me, do I bring their average up or do I bring their average down? Now think about the people you're gonna spend time with. Do they bring your average up or do they bring your average down? Now a lot of you think, eh, I'm not that easily influenced. Let's back up for a minute and take the second layer of the study. Think about the five people you're with and who they're with when they're not with you. Are they people who are bringing them up spiritually or down spiritually? And are you even aware that everything in life that happens to you, you process through the lens of the people you spend a lot of time with? Paul says, you gotta keep your eyes on people who are strong spiritually because it impacts you spiritually and there are a lot of unspiritual people who are really bad to kind of look at and focus on. So you need to remember to really make sure you have models of spiritual faithfulness. Because you're either, as you make decisions, you're going to process decisions based on people who are really spiritually mature or people who are really spiritually immature. He also says you are either, as life happens to you, you are either going to surrender um, to a spiritual mindset of earthly things or you're going to surrender to a spiritual mindset of heavenly things. Like as life happens to you, you're either, you're either going to put value on what is happening in the earthly realm of your life or what is happening in the spiritual realm of your life. As life happens to you, you're going to, you're going to surrender to one, or two, one of two perspectives, a heavenly perspective or an earthly perspective. Look at what he says in verses 19 through 21. Speaking of the enemies of the cross of Christ, he says, their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame because their mind is on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. So Paul says, as things, listen, as something happens to you this week, you're gonna, you're gonna become more mature spiritually or less mature spiritually. That probably will be based on who you're unpacking your life with. It will also be based on whether or not you put more weight on earthly things or heavenly things. Now, there's two really, there's so much to unpack in these verses, but there's two really important theological things to unpack um, that I want to give you because I, I think there's, there's some good theology 101 things for us in this text. The first is this. I don't know, I don't know if you processed it as you read it, but spiritual uh, maturity, what I would call mature Christian theology A, so there's going to be a part A and a part B here, is this. What we just read reminds us that we are broken people living in a broken world. Mature Christian theology starts with the premise that I am a broken person and I live in a broken world. You say, where did you get that? By looking at the enemies of Christ. 
You say, what did you learn about the enemies of Christ that taught you that? They look like me. When I read what an enemy of Christ looks like, I thought, holy cow, that looks like me. Enemies of Christ live mostly for things on earth, not things in heaven. That looks like me a lot of times. Enemies of Christ make most of their decisions based on their gut and what would feel best for them and be best for them in the here and the now. That looks like me a lot of times. Enemies of Christ, their glory is their shame. The word glory is a word that means weight or heaviness. A lot of times what I feel most deeply is shame over the wrong decisions I've made. I look like an enemy of Christ and my destruction or, or my end is destruction. I, I learn mature Christian theology by being honest with my own life. When I look at an enemy of Christ, it looks like me. And what the Bible will teach me if I went into layers deep theology is this. I do not sin because of the brokenness around me. I sin because of the brokenness within me. I don't sin because of the brokenness around me. I sin because of the brokenness within me. Because I usually make decisions based on the here and now, not the then and the there. Because I normally make decisions based on what will feel best and be best for me in the moment. Because I normally make decisions and have actions that leave me ashamed. And because without Jesus, my end is destruction. I love the way one of my pastors and authors, J.D., one of my favorite pastors and favorite authors, J.D. Greer, says it. He says, I tell my teenage kids, um, you don't sin because you're with the wrong crowd. You sin because you are the wrong crowd. <laughs> like your sin and your brokenness is going to call you to sin over and over and over again. This is what the Bible teaches us in James 1, 13 through 15. James, Jesus' little brother, says, when you're tempted, no one should say, God's tempting me. For God can't be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then once that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Parents, please listen to me. Your kids are going to have sinful desires that don't need to be conceived and end in death if you will parent well. I think one of the great gaps in the church maybe the last quarter century is we've not taught parents to say to their kids, listen to me, son or daughter, I am a sinner, totally broken by sin. Every time I get it wrong as a dad, every time I get it wrong as a husband, every time I get it wrong as a neighbor, we're gonna have a family meeting and I'm gonna tell you, I didn't sin because of what's happening around me, I sinned because of what's happening within me. I have a, I have a broken nature, this, like, this is how I came out of the womb. I came out with a sin nature and every time I make it about myself, I end up in sin. And you are going to do the same thing. You're going to have desires that cause you to want to live for you rather than live for God because you're a sinner and you need God to forgive you of your sin and help you with your sin. We live in a culture that wants to, that wants to so comfort and tell our kids that they're good kids that always do the right things that we have no place to even explain wrong things as sin. No, that's wrong. Danielle and I last week were on vacation in Florida. One day we were at the beach and there was a family who kind of settled next to us on the beach, a mom, dad, two teenage daughters, and little boy who I think was four or five. If he was four, he was really tall. If he was five, he was just a little immature. But they, they were kind of out there playing in the sand, doing their thing. And the little guy was having a snack and seagulls kept trying to land and take a snack. 
She said, Mom, like he kept talking, his name was Danny. She kept talking, Danny, no, Danny, no. Danny, don't feed the birds. Danny, don't do this. So there's seagulls that he called pigeons, and she kept trying to convince him they were seagulls, not pigeons, but it didn't work. It's so like, whatever, don't feed the pigeons. So eventually, sisters go into the water to swim. He's done with his snack, and the seagulls come back, and I hear him say to his mom, Mom, the pigeon's back. And she's like, don't worry about it, Danny. And he said, can I kill it? I thought, wow, this kid is a future psychopath. Like I'm sitting, and I, and, but I'm interested in the mom's reaction because I thought, you know, we have a generation that never wants to tell kids they have a wrong thought or desire about anything. So surely she's not gonna tell this kid, do whatever you want. Do what makes you feel. If you feel like killing it, of course kill it. Good luck. Let me get a video so I can like watch it and post it on the internet for like later when you need to be incarcerated. Like, <laughs> like I was wondering if this mom would say, no, Danny, don't kill the pigeon. We live in a world of parents, Christian parents, who I think are afraid to tell their children, no, that's sinful. No, you cannot do, no, that's sinful. God, God has not created you to do that. God doesn't want you to do that. That would be sinful. Don't kill the, don't kill the pigeon. See, we look in this and we learn this theology that the world is broken, but we are broken. And Paul says, if it's left up to us, we are always gonna do what feels good to us here and now and sometimes we can be happy with that. But he's like, don't ever be satisfied with that. Because he tells us that nobody on earth will ever give us what Jesus promises. And nothing on earth will give us what only heaven promises. Don't search for things that are false peace. Don't search for things that are, that are false comfort. Don't search for things that are only temporary. I love this Paul David Tripp devotional that my friend Stephen Bonney gave me a couple years ago that... I've been reading every day this week. There's a powerful, powerful text in this where Tripp said, he's a pastor who's traveled all over the world. He said, the more I travel from church to church, this won't be on the screen because I read it after I turned the message in. The more I travel from church to church, the more I engage with leaders and the more I have opportunities to interview people in the seats. And the more I grow convinced that the true crisis in the modern evangelical church is not dissatisfaction, it's the opposite. We're all too satisfied. We're all too satisfied with who we are, where we are, and what we're doing. We're satisfied with a little bit of biblical literacy. We're satisfied with occasional moments of ministry. We're satisfied with manageable debt that allows us to put a few coins in the plate. We're satisfied that we've been married for a while, and it doesn't look like as if we'll break up soon. We're satisfied with a bit of a grasp on the theology of the scripture. We're satisfied with faithful attendance at weekend services of our church. We're satisfied with quick morning devotions. We're satisfied with a little bit of ministry experience. We're satisfied that we don't act out most of our lust, and we don't communicate most of our envy. We're satisfied in our disappointment with God, that in our disappointment with God, at least we don't walk away. We're satisfied that we can harness a good bit of our fear of man. We're satisfied to use most of the material resources to make and keep ourselves comfortable. We're satisfied to be mere consumers of the work of the church rather than committed participants in it. We're satisfied with hearts that occasionally wonder and with thoughts that contradict the Bible, what the Bible says is good and true. We're satisfied with the amount of conflict we have in our life. We're satisfied. And because we're satisfied, we've stopped, look, we've stopped looking to Jesus. Nobody can offer you what Jesus offers. And nothing will ever offer you what only heaven promises. So like, look higher than you're looking. Don't surrender to what is less than the best when Jesus and his promises 
are there for you. As we look at mature Christian theology B, it really wraps around that whole thought. My hope and my home don't come from the here and now. Paul's like, we're broken people living in a broken world. Everyone lives for themselves, but mature Christians will eventually get out of that and they won't try to, they won't try to create heaven on earth. They'll realize heaven is apart from earth and they'll realize that their home spiritually and their hope spiritually is in another place and for another time. Our spiritual hope is not in who we are, it's in who Jesus is. We don't have spiritual hope because we're better than we used to be. We have spiritual hope because Jesus is perfect. Our spiritual home is not in where we are now, but in where we will be when we are finally with Jesus. Our best day on earth, that day where we feel like it was heaven on earth that we wish we could repeat over and over and over and over again, is a day where disease and drought and death killed millions of people around the globe. Your best day can't even get close to what the eternal kingdom of God would look like. So don't be too satisfied when Jesus offers more. Amen? Paul said, our citizenship's not here. He was talking to people in Philippi who were citizens of Rome, but they didn't live in Rome. And he said, we await Rome for a savior. When something went wrong in Philippi, they knew it might take time, but they knew eventually Rome was coming. Paul said, when things go wrong on planet Earth, I know eventually Jesus is coming, and that is the hope that I wait for. My great hope is not that an election will reset Christian values back to 1853. My hope is not that there'll be a revival in the church. My hope is not a resetting of anything or revival of anything. My hope is in the return of Jesus Christ, amen? That's my hope. When he, when he comes back, everything's gonna get better. Until then, we try to press in and get a little more mature as we go. It's hard, but not impossible. Just stay on the path, know Christ, be like Christ, eventually be with Christ. And then number two, it's interesting because we see what I call a quick plea for spiritual unity. Paul is begging the people of the church at Philippi to think this way. He's begging them to process their approach and their attitude to grow mature spiritually. He says, therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy in my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way. Dear friends, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Sintiki to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they've contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. If you have your pen, jump up to verse one of chapter four and in the last sentence, circle the words in this way. Paul said, I am begging you to think and to process life in this way that everything that happens can mature you, can help you, if you will surrender to that happening. But he said, that will not happen in this way unless you are in the Lord. It's interesting because this phrase isn't a command as much as it's a condition. Paul's not saying you have to do this to become a Christian. He's saying you won't become a mature Christian unless your life looks like this, you stand in the Lord. Now, he's given us now three chapters of what it looks like to stand in the Lord and to grow spiritually. There's six kind of really basic principles of standing in the Lord that he's given us. Go ahead and throw them up on the screen, guys. He said, like, here's what it looks like to stand in the Lord. You can't have a mature attitude unless you have a mature walk with Jesus. So stand in the Lord. What does that look like? Spend time in the Word. Spend time in prayer. Spend time reflecting on God's promises. Spend time reflecting on my spiritual experiences. Spend time in, weekly, in the weekly congregation of God's people. Spend time in spiritual community talking about my spiritual issues. 
stand in the Lord. You cannot be mature in the Lord unless you stand in the Lord. You can't stand with, in the Lord unless you spend time with the Lord. So this is kind of the basics that he's laid out for us in the first three chapters of Philippians. Now, let's go back half a point. The five people you spend the most time with, they do this more or less than you. People in your circle who are thinking about you, because you're in their circle, they do this more or they do this less. Paul said we need to live in this way. But we can't live in this way unless we live in the Lord. So all these, by the way, are part of our 1% initiative next year. Time in the word, time in prayer, time reflecting on God's promises. We would call that scripture memorization. We take a promise of God and we just reflect on it over and over and over again until we commit it to memory. Time reflecting, on, uh, time reflecting on my spiritual experience, we call that journaling. Writing down, hey, here's what's going on and here's how I'm processing things right now. Time in church is time in church. I love the thought of time in spiritual community, not just studying scripture, but time in spiritual community talking about how scripture's been studying me. A lot of reasons we don't see life transformation when people are in discipleship groups is because all they're doing is talking about what they see in the word, but they're not talking about what the word has revealed in them that needs to change. So like there's these levels of maturing and maturity. So I would challenge you next year, 1%, just 1% more in these areas, I think, can really, really help. If you want a little like shot of adrenaline in these areas, this Wednesday, because it's the first Wednesday of the month, I can't believe it's already November, but it's coming. November 1, we'll have our first Wednesday prayer. We'll be in here. We'll be doing almost all of those six things from 6.30 to 7.35. We'll be praying through a chapter of uh, the Psalms together. Um, and it'll just be a great environment to soak in the Lord. Paul says, I want you to be mature, but you can't be mature unless you spend time in the Lord. And then we're going to close this message with something Paul didn't normally do. Paul often gave what I would call shout-outs to people. He's known for giving shout-outs to people at the end of his book. But in Philippians chapter 4, he's giving some ladies a call-out. Like when I say a shout-out, Paul ends most of the books he writes like an Oscar award show. Like he gets up and like he's holding his trophy and he's like, I want to thank Tommy and I want to thank Sally and I want to thank my mom and dad and my fifth grade drama teacher who got me into arts in the first place and the production director and the lighting director. Like in Romans chapter 16, Paul names 32 people by name. They would have started the commercial and gone to, com they would have started the music and gone to commercial break while he was still trying to like thank everyone. Like Paul is notorious for trying to say hi to all his friends at the end of a book. This is one of the only places where he publicly calls out two people by name and was like, y'all got to fix this. And what he's telling them is you disagree on spiritual maturity. In this area, I'm trying to teach you how to think and become spiritually mature. As a church, you got to help these two ladies agree on this because they don't think spiritual maturity is important. So someone get alone with Euodia and Sintiki and like help them figure this out. Like, we are one day when we walk the streets of heaven going to meet people and be like, I heard your name in scripture. I heard your name in scripture. I heard your name in scripture. Most of them, we're, we're going to be in awe of and we're going to want to hear their story. When we meet Euodia and Sintiki, since none of us know anybody by that name, we're going to see them and we're going to think, oh, did you get that thing figured out? Like, like um, remember y'all got in trouble in Philippians chapter four. Like I, we, we talked about it in our church in the English language 2,000 years later. Paul's like, y'all got to figure this out, man. So he tells the church, help them figure it out. Interesting question. If somebody wrote a letter 
like somebody apostolic, uh, not me, um, to our church and listed the names of every person in it. And half of you were on the shout out list. You're doing awesome, keep it up. And some of you were on the call out list. You need to grow up in this area. Which list would you be on based on like 2023? The good news is, as I think you've already seen on the screen, Paul says stand in the Lord, but he also said do it in community. Christians need Christians to help them mature and be what Paul said in Philippians chapter three, Christians should be. We can't do it by ourselves. It's too hard. So he tells the church at Philippi, help each other, learn to grow and mature. Help each other, stay on the course. Help each other, learn to have attitudes and approaches and processes that realize that they're not in control of life but they are in control of their reaction to it. And what happens in life, everything that happens can actually mature them spiritually. It's interesting, if we go back to verse 16, it's a phenomenal verse with a phenomenal picture. Paul says, only let us live up to what we've already attained. In the Greek language, it can be translated this simply. One more thing, stay the course. That's how it can be translated. One more thing, just stay on the course. If you keep living to know Jesus, be like Jesus, one day be with Jesus, you probably not mature in every area yet, but if you stay the course, you'll get there. But there are no shortcuts. I read an article earlier this year about a, a Canadian um, half marathoner named Trevor Hoffbauer, who not only won the Las Vegas half marathon in March, but he shattered like every marathon record, half marathon record that there was as a part of the event. When he broke the tape, he had shattered the Canadian half marathon record. He had shattered, I think, the world half marathon record. He had shattered the Las Vegas half marathon record. He'd won six figures of prize money. Um, like he had done all of these wonderful things until he hadn't. Because as they went back and looked at his time and how it was so miraculously fast, they realized that at the 1.75 mile point of this 13.1 mile race he had been following not the lead motorcycle but the third motorcycle and when the lead motorcycle kept going on the course the third motorcycle pulled off and the whole lead pack of runners got off course and ran a 12.54 mile race not a 13.1 mile race there went the Canadian record there went the Las Vegas record there went the world record there went the prize money all of them disqualified because they got off course Paul is saying here, spiritual maturity is the tape. It's the tape we want to break. We want to like grow spiritually and know Jesus and become like Jesus and be with Jesus. If you just keep running that race, you'll get there. But there's no shortcuts. To think you can do it without spending time in the word, no shortcuts. To think you can do it without spending time in prayer, there's no shortcuts. To think you can do it without being in church faithfully. To think that you can do it without having spiritual community that speaks into you. There are no shortcuts spiritual. To think you can do it without knowing God's word. To think you can do it without reflecting on what's going on in your life and processing that spiritually. There's no shortcuts. But if you just stay on the course, you will eventually keep growing. And one day you'll reach maturity. Stay the course. What's God said to you today? What do you need to do to process that and turn it into action? As we close, three questions will scroll on the screen to let you think a little bit about your personal faith life. And then I'll come close this in prayer. But God, as we process, open our hearts and minds to hear from you, lean into you, receive from you, and mature. 
Help us to stay the course and keep maturing. In Jesus' name, amen.